All right, my friends, good morning. I hope you guys are all well. Real quick, I want to look at uh, Acts 17. It's one of my favorite speeches of Paul or preaches or teaches or however you'd like to phrase it. I don't know about you, but uh, depending on what you listen to or what we consider or read, we can kind of get this idea that like we're just going to like hunker down until Jesus comes back and, you know, kind of circle the wagons as Christians and just hope for the best. But I appreciate that uh, Paul... You can actually, if, if you're interested, even right now, get your phone out. You can Google the Areopagus. You can Google where he went to. So he goes to this place, and it's in, uh, well, there's one in Ephesus. And he goes there, and he's just, he's just talking to folks about um, the Lord. And he's right in the middle of these, all these philosophers, uh, Greek philosophers that are polytheists. You know, it's, it's, uh, also, some of your English translations might say Mars Hill. Uh, it's not just a former church in Seattle. It's actually a real place. And uh, he goes there, and, and, and they're all just kind of arguing about polytheistic philosophy and what the point of life is. In a society that honestly, goodnessly makes our society look like the most wholesome preschool you've ever been to. Um, you know, the, you have the different temples that are there. You have phallic statues that line the streets. Uh, you have essentially in, in Rome and even back into some of the Philistine and some of the other uh, ancient gods that they worshipped, um, pedophilia and sodomizing children was a, a way of worship when they bring money and food and so forth. And so that's where he's at, right? A place where we would possibly deem as hopeless, as no reason to outreach to, We'll never be able to convince anyone. No one will ever listen to it. That kind of thing, right? But he says here in, in uh, Acts 17, we're just going to jump into the middle of his presentation. He stands up in verse 22. Then Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and he said, People of Athens, I see that every one of you, in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing that you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. So he just tells them, like, hey, uh, you're, I think it's interesting that he doesn't just come out swinging and be like, you rancid, sinful, terrible people. He says, I observe that you're very religious. I observe that you have some sort of desire to see God. And he says, in fact, you even have a, a, a place where you can worship, an altar where you can worship the unknown God. And that was true. A lot of Greeks and, and later on in Romans, uh, they were concerned about essentially ticking off some god they'd never heard of. And so they would make offerings to the unknown god. So it just seemed like, well, we want to get our bases covered here. And so he, he says, I want to tell you about who the unknown god is that, you, that you're sacrificing to. And he says in verse 24, The god who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and health and everything else. 
From one man he made the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their land. So just, just think about that for a second. So Paul's saying, he's talking about the magnitude and this incredible power that God has. And, and one of the things that he says, he says, God from all time marked out boundaries and times in which kingdoms would be. Does that make sense? Which is a little bit beyond our idea, right? That, like, how can God do that? How, how is he so powerful and so able that, for, that before time began, uh, you know, where Mexico would be and where the United States would be and how that would change in Canada all the way down to, uh, you know, the first um, uh, warlords of the, the Fertile Crescent that we read about in, in Genesis and so forth. So how, how did he do that? Well, you know, we're not here to answer that, but he did. And it's interesting because he says exactly why he did it. It says that he, verse 27, God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. So who's he talking to? Polytheistic, morally rancid philosophers. And he says that God is not far from any one of them. So there's not a person that God is far from. And he says that God has arranged times and places and all the kingdoms and rulers, all these things, so that every single person, so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him. And I just was thinking, you know, just lately it's kind of been on my mind for myself and just for our church. We are exactly when and where we are supposed to be. This is the greatest time in the world for us to be alive. Because our call and our goal is to reach people that they might reach out to him. And so I just, for myself and for us, if if it's for someone else, man, we have a great ministry ahead of us. And here's the crazy thing. It's not going to be very long from now that Christianity is going to become illegal for them. And for us too, probably, but for them. Right? And, and you're going to have uh, massive persecution in, in Rome and in other places. And to the extent that over the course of, uh, I don't know, 100 or 150 years, they estimate somewhere between 100 and 150 million Christians are going to be killed. And yet here we are, 1,800 years after that, 1,700 years after that, preaching the same gospel that they preached, reading the same letters that they read, and it hasn't been stamped out. So we have an incredible opportunity. Hopefully we never hunker down. Hopefully we never fear the outlaw of Christianity. Obviously we don't want that. But you know what? If that happens, we'll meet at home. If that happens, we'll do what the saints of old did. Like Tertullian told us, the, 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 the seed of the gospel flows in the blood of the saints. And if we shed our blood, and if we lose our heads, and if we're torn asunder, the will of the Lord be done. Because we live in just the right time to reach the people that are here. And our work is far from over. Right? It's just beginning. And I just want to encourage you guys. It's not time to hunker down. It's not time to, to fear the world or the Congress or whatever. It's time to just love Christ and let him do what he wants to do. 
2 Corinthians chapter 4. So in 2 Corinthians, remember we're going through the letter here, very brief uh, introduction. Paul is, in this point, he's uh, doing two things. He's defending his ministry, right, because you have a whole sect of individuals that are in Corinth and they are uh, rejecting Paul's teaching. What are they advocating? For the most part, they're either kind of advocating loose living as a, as a source of grace abounding, or they're advocating for uh, legalistic living. You kind of have a, it must have been a mixed bag there. Uh, and they're advocating for Jesus is not enough. It takes Jesus uh, plus the dietary laws, plus circumcision for men, um, and uh, observing the Sabbath, right? And so that's what they're preaching. So Paul has been writing back to them. He's addressing the uh, difficulties that are going on there. If you remember in the beginning of chapter 3, he asked the question, which is continuing into our thoughts of chapter 4. He says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? So he's asking the Corinthians, he says, look, remember Paul started that church. He was there for 18 months. So he's, he's writing back to them because of the difficulties they're having. He's, he's asking, do I have to have a letter of recommendation? Remember, he's the guy who writes letters of recommendation. Uh, you might recall in the end of Romans chapter 16 where he says, hey, this is Phoebe. She's bringing this letter. Make sure that you give her anything she needs for the work of God. She is a co-laborer with us, and she deserves all the respect of that, right? So this is the guy who writes those letters along with John and others too. But he's referring back to them. And he said, have we come to a place that you've bought into these teachers and their teachings about Judaism and about uh, or loose living so much so that with me, who started your church, Paul would say, that I have to write back to you and get letters that say I'm a valid teacher of the, of the word. Then he goes on from there and he says, no. He says, you guys are my letter. You are the letter written in Christ on our hearts and everybody can read it. In other words, he says, what God is doing amongst you is the letter of my verification or legitimacy because he's the one that, and he's very humble about it. He's not a jerk about it. But he says it's through Christ working in him that that's how that church was born, how it worked. So he said, by, by this fruit that you have among you, that should be valid enough for you to receive these letters and this input that he's trying to give. He goes through there, then he challenges what seems to be the main issue, which is this idea of embracing and incorporating the old covenant into new covenant churches and new covenant theology. And he says, look, three times he, he uses it, in verse 7, in verse 11, uh, and in verse uh, 13, it's translated transitory and passing away. Three times he, he uses this Greek word that literally means to become obsolete. And so what he's saying over and over again is he says the old covenant is obsolete now. There's no place for it in the new covenant. It had a purpose. We know the law was given so that it might expose sin and cause sin to be exceedingly sinful. It was designed, the, 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 the uh, 613 Levitical um, tenants, that those were to manage and to rule a, 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 a theocratic nation, a nation that was led by God. And then you have the Ten Commandments of a moral code of, of essentially uh, to love one another, the kind of, and love God and love one another. So he says those things are obsolete. It doesn't mean God's heart is obsolete or that those things don't matter. He's saying that there's no place for them in the new covenant. Whereas the old covenant, uh, we, re we read in Hebrews, it tells us that the blood of bulls and goats, it could not forgive sin, right? In the Old Testament, in, in the Hebrew, it, the word there was atone, and it means to smear. 
So the blood of bulls and goats, it smeared over sin, right? It didn't forgive it. That's why every Old Testament saint looked forward to the coming of Messiah, who would take away the sin of the world, right? Like John the Baptist said. So he's writing back to them. He's saying, you can't keep going back to this old covenant looking for uh, some sort of legitimate righteousness through that covenant. It doesn't work. It's, it's passing away, he says. It was, trans, it was transitory. It served a purpose. Its purpose is over. Now, no one's saying that you can't go home and have the Afi Coleman or have a, a Seder dinner or something like that. But having a Seder dinner doesn't bring you closer to Jesus. Having a Seder dinner just helps you understand Jewish philosophy and maybe a picture of what God was doing in the Passover. Does that make sense? So that's what he's talking about here. Then he talks about when the, the veil, there's a veil over Jews' face. We know why that veil was there, because he says in Romans chapter 9 that the Jews rejected Jesus and his righteousness, the righteousness that came through Christ, because they sought to their own righteousness, literally their own righteousness, through obedience of the law. So the Jews, both individually and as a nation, obviously not all Jews rejected it because the church is starts with like 100% Jews or 99% Jews, right? But the people that rejected him had hardened his heart and they did, their hearts and had determined that they would find their own righteousness by doing the law. So because of that, their hardening, they put a veil over their face in a sense. He makes two, in chapter 3, two allusions to this. Number one, he says, to prove his point about the old covenant, that Moses wore a veil because he would come out of the tabernacle and he'd be glowing. And so he put a veil over his face. And if you just read the Old Testament uh, uh, accounts of that, you might think like, oh, he must have been like two million lumens and people couldn't look at him. But when you read the, the New Testament, what Paul says in chapter 3, he says that Moses put the veil on because he did not want people to see the fact that the glow went away, that it was fading and he likens that to the covenant. And he says the old covenant was fading away. And so Moses was trying to hide the fact that it was a fading glory. But now he says in the new covenant, if, if he, he, he says, if that which was the ministry of death had glory or doxa, good opinion or good words about it, how much more glory does this new covenant have through Christ, right? So there's this whole comparison that he goes through. Then he says, we who have received Christ... Have, the veil has been removed, and it's important because it says there in chapter 3, um, in verse 15, he says, Even to this day when Moses is read, the veil covers their hearts. Verse 16, But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the word turns to the Lord, it's important because it's, a, it's an active, it's an aorist active. And what that means is the subject is the person doing the turning. So when the person turns to the Lord, then the veil is taken away. So he says, for those who have turned to Christ, the veil is taken away, and now they're able to behold Christ and his glory, his doxa. And as we consider him and behold him, we are being changed into that same image. The, not in that we are becoming deity. We're not saying that, and the Bible never teaches that. But that we are taking on and becoming by nature like Jesus, in this, the new man created in Christ, which he talks about in Romans, right? So you have this incredible uh, transformation that's taking place in a life. So it's, it's in that vein that we pick up in chapter 4 and verse 1. Therefore, so therefore, everything we've just talked about, right? 
So because of all this change that is happening, the fact that the veil is taken away when you turn to the Lord, the fact that we're being changed by God as we observe him, therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Now this chapter 4 is a very poetic chapter, but it's a very personal chapter that Paul's uh, going to talk about ministry. That's really what chapter 4 is all about, ministry. And he says this about the ministry. So because of this change and this incredible thing that's happening in chapter 3, the transition from old to new covenant, the transition from who we are to what Jesus is wanting to make us, because of that, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we don't lose heart. So he makes a, a commentary, a personal commentary about ministry. Now we can appropriate this for ourselves uh, in ministry context and so forth, and we will by application. But in this context, Paul is talking about his own ministry and the brethren that are with him. He says, therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. So the, one of the one things, remember Paul's being persecuted right now. And he makes a comment here, and it's very telling. Number one, what is this ministry? It's the ministry of the new covenant, right? It's the ministry of the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the ministry of, of ministering and letting people know about the blood of Christ, his death, his resurrection, and the power of the Holy Spirit that was given at Pentecost. And now the, the power that we have as being sealed by the Spirit. And we could go back and we can validate that if we were to look through uh, um, chapter 3 and, and chapter 2. Uh, the end of chapter 2, he, he talks about um, their ministry and how they're preaching, the aroma, or how they are the aroma of life versus the aroma of death and so forth. So it's, it's easy to validate what this ministry is. But then he says this. He says, this is why they have the ministry. This is how they got the ministry. God's mercy. right? So if, if, if grace is unmerited favor, so if grace is getting what we don't deserve, right? so we didn't deserve salvation, Nobody's ever deserved salvation, but by the grace of God, we got saved through our faith. So when the gospel was revealed to us, we said, yes, I'm a dirty sinner. I do need that. We received Christ, but it was grace that saved us, all right? So after that occurred, um, or I should say that we re what we received, we never deserved, and that's what grace is. It's the idea of unmerited favor, somebody doing something for you and you doing nothing, right? So if you say, hey, Will you do me a favor and get me a glass of water? What you're saying is, I'm going to do absolutely nothing but continue to sit here, and I am asking you to do work for me, and you're going to get nothing in return. I will say thank you, but that's, I mean, what's that worth, really? So that's, that's what grace is. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. So if grace is receiving what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve, right? So if you, if you go to court, let's say you get a ticket, and you, I don't know, you're doing like 100 in a 15-mile-an-hour zone, and you go to court... And the, 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 the judge is looking at it, he's like, oh, you know, this is reckless driving. That's like a $1,000 fine in six months if we want to. And you can say, oh, man, please don't do that. Please let me have mercy on me. What you're saying is I agree that by the law that's, you know, what I owe. But I'm asking you not to give that to me, right? And so mercy, so the judge says, okay, you know, we'll knock it down to a 50 and a 50 or whatever. I don't know how that would work. Not well, I don't think. But, you know, so, you, so he says, hey, okay, we won't do that. She, she gives, grants you some sort of clemency. You don't receive what you deserve. So Paul says that we have this ministry, and later on he's going to call us and himself ambassadors of a new covenant, that we represent this new covenant. He says that the only reason we have it, the only reason that we get it is because we have mercy, because he's, he's being merciful to us. Not only do we not deserve salvation and received it, but we deserve penalty, 
right? We deserve condemnation, but we don't get that. And because we don't get that, we end up with this ministry uh, uh, of the new covenant. But then he, he goes even farther and he says, because we have, because the origin of our ministry or the, the opportunity to have ministry is through mercy, we don't lose heart. See, if, if, if our ministry was based on us, and I'm not saying obviously fidelity and investment and these things, they're important for how efficient your, uh, effective your ministry is going to be, right? Um, but God still offers us ministry even when we're not super effective. I think that's noteworthy. Not to go off on a weird tangent here, because I could do that easily, but to, to note that God blesses many ministries that are not done in fidelity. He's just big, and he's incredible, and his word is very powerful. But in this case, when we're talking about how we can essentially survive in ministry, because that's what he's going to go on to talk about, it's, it's based on the fact that God has mercy and grace and power for us to be involved in this ministry. So Paul's saying... Coming off of what we just talked about in chapter 3, because of, therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. And to lose heart, some of your translations may say faint. It's the idea of losing strength, throwing in the towel, giving up, right? And he says the reason we don't do that is because this ministry that we've been given is based on God's mercy in our lives. Verse 2, he says, rather, or instead... We have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Excuse me. We'll stop there. So remember, he's still defending his ministry. So he makes the point that the ministry that he has, this ministry of the new covenant, it's all by mercy and he's not losing heart. Remember, they're attacking him. People in Corinth are attacking him. They're constantly making accusation against him. That doesn't feel good, does it? If someone were to continue bringing into question the validity of your ministry, continue to, whatever your ministry might be, if they were to continue to go like, you know what, not only are they wrong, but they're not doing anything worth anything. That would be discouraging. Imagine if you had discipled someone, if you, if you had gone somewhere and started some ministry, and then you know, uh, 10, 20 years down the road, you find out that they're saying that you're basically wrong, you're weak, you're not worth listening to, and it was all pointless. Would that discourage you? One of us? It would discourage me. It would be discouraging. We'd get upset if someone says, like, our outfit was wrong. I mean, you know what I mean? We're like, ah! And then we get... Imagine if someone is literally calling into question your validity as a Christian. That's what's happening here. So Paul, in his address today, says, I'm not going to faint because I have God's mercy. And he says, you know, instead of fainting, this is, instead of losing heart, this, we, get, we push even farther. He says, we renounce secret and shameful ways. We do not use uh, deception or literally trickery, nor do we distort the word of God. So he's making commentary on those false teachers while talking about his own ministry and that of Timothy and others that had been to, um, been to Corinth. And he's saying to them, we don't do that. We don't manipulate the scriptures. We don't try to change them to try to uh, make our message more palatable or to, to, to make our message uh, uh, so that you'll receive it. Because that's what they were doing, right? And the two sides, whether it's, in a sense, sinful liberty or it's legalism, both those messages will be attractive to people that aren't fully interested in Jesus as the, as the Savior and as the Lord, right? 
Because if, my, if, if I'm interested by sinful liberty, meaning like, hey, do what you want, right? In fact, it's interesting, you know, uh, Alistair Crowley, you know, called the most wicked man in England, uh, he lived to about 47. He wrote a book called the Book of, he wrote many weird books, but he wrote one called the Book of the Law. And the Book of the Law is essentially credited as being the Satanic Bible. And, and the whole point of the Book of the Law, like the theme of the Book of the Law, in his, his book, we're not talking about the Old Testament, obviously, but in, in Alistair Crowley's book, is Do as Thou Wilt is the whole of the law. That's kind of heralded as kind of the, the Satanic, um, I don't know, mantra, if you will. And which makes sense, right? Because that goes all the way back to, the, to Genesis. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. You can do what you want, right? Anyway, all I have to say is, saying those things as a false teacher is going to gather people to you, isn't it? People who are interested in the flesh and, and people that are given to the flesh, if you just tell them, like, hey, you know what? Jesus makes your life better. You just, you know, just come to church and uh, he'll make your life better and you can keep doing whatever you want. That's an attractive message to some people, right? Especially if I'm given to something and I want to keep doing those things or whatever it might be. So he says, we don't do that. We don't twist the word to get. And then the other side of it with the Jewishness, uh, you see that today in churches also, right? And it's kind of, it's, it's kind of presented two ways. One, way is, one way it's presented is kind of a, a legalism righteousness. That it's Jesus is a good start. Yes, he's the Messiah, but you have to fulfill all these other portions of the law to maintain that righteousness that Jesus' blood kind of began with you. Like in a sense, Jesus was kind of like the down payment for sin, and then we make like monthly payments to make sure we're caught up on our debt to God. We say things like keep a short account. Have you ever thought about that? Keep a short account. If you tell someone well, you should keep a short account, what are you telling them? You're telling them that if you have sin at the moment of your death, you go to hell. Why would I have to keep a short account when the reality is I was completely forgiven in Christ? I keep a short account because I want fellowship with God, right? I confess my sin because I want to talk to him. I want to receive his power and be involved with him. But this thing of like threatening people, we better keep a short account or else. And it's, we, in our class, we call them shrug, shrug statements or shrug verses, where someone talks about, oh, you're saved by grace of your faith, but Jesus did say to feed the poor, and if you don't, ooh. You're like, what's ooh? What do I do with that? Where's my security in that? Well, you probably should keep a short account. I mean, it's, it's saved by grace, but I, well, I mean, ooh. Is that security? That's bad Bible teaching. That's what that is. So, so somebody who comes along and says, hey, you got to, you got to keep these things. you got to do these things. That's going to appeal to people that are good at those things, isn't it? It's going to appeal to self-righteous people that go, yeah, you know what? I do feel better about myself when I, when I keep the Sabbath. I do feel better about myself you know, that I'm circumcised. I do feel better about myself because I stay away from shrimp. You know, whatever it might be. It, it, and so Paul says, no, we don't, we don't adulterate it to try to draw different people in. He says, what we do, we just plainly preach the gospel. That's what we do. He says, we don't distort it. We don't use trickery. On the contrary, so instead of that, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. He says, so by what we do, in God's sight, right, as God sees us, what we're doing is everyone, essentially, it says it really nicely in the New Living, everyone who's honest it, it, it basically we're validated to. So when we're just preaching the gospel, everybody who's honestly just seeking Jesus, they'll, they'll be, will be valid to them. 
But other people are trying these other things outside of Christ. It won't seem like a valid gospel. And he goes on from there. Verse 3, addressing um, back with the veils. He says this in verse 3, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age, right, that's Satan, the God of this age has blinded their mind, the minds of unbelievers, so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, this is a fascinating couple set of verses. What does this mean? Now, number one, when was the last time he talked about veils, right? Because context, He's, this isn't a new idea with veils. Even though there's a little four right here that we're in chapter four, it doesn't change what he's been talking about with veils, right? This isn't some new idea. Veils that he spoke of before were by Jews that sought self-righteousness and, for, and thought they could be right with God through the law, and so they had a veil over their face every time Moses was read. The veil is that it's only Moses. And so, but he says, when a person turns to the Lord, that that veil is removed. So he just is making a statement. He's saying, look, people that have some sort of ulterior motive, seeking their own righteousness, living a life of lasciviousness, insisting on their own will, whatever it might be, those people have a veil over their eyes. They're veiled to the truth. He goes on there and he says that the, the God of this world, so Satan, the enemy of our souls, uh, the wicked one, uh, all the different ways that those are kind of laid out, he says that the wicked one blinds people, right? And he says that he blinds them, uh, the un minds of unbelievers, so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that, that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So we have to ask the question, does Satan make it? so that a person cannot, literally cannot see the gospel. Well, I don't know. Are you guys saved? Is anybody here saved? Two of us? All right. Just kidding. Evidently, he didn't stop you, right? Evidently, somehow you saw the gospel. So evidently, this is overcomable. In the NASB, it, puts it, it says it this way. It says that he's, he, he blinds the line so they cannot see the light. Now, Paul's going to talk about light quite a, few, uh, quite a bit here in the next ensuing verses. Light being the idea of illumination, right? Revelation. They can't see the light of the gospel that displays the glory, the doxa, the good opinion of Christ. Okay? The NASB says that they might not see. See, there's something about translation that's important. We were actually talking about this a couple of Thursdays ago. Every translation starts with a thought by thought. I know that's scary for some of us. Because many things in Greek don't just translate over. Right? Like, so like in Spanish, if you were to say, I love you, in some Spanish cultures, you'd say, like, te quiere, which literally translates out to wants you. Which, if you said that to someone around here, you'd be like, hey, I want you. Would that work? <laughs> would you feel comfortable? Be like, hey, that's cool. Let's talk about that sometime. No, it would be offensive, wouldn't it? And so culturally, you understand that te quiere is I love you to, in that culture. Whereas in our culture, we say I love you, right? So you can't, if you did a word-for-word -word translation of that and Jesus said te quiere, would it work? No. So what happens in, in translation, these are word-for-word -word translations. They're word-for-word -word translation based on idea to idea. Does that make sense? It's trustworthy. 
We're not saying, don't worry, we're, we're, the, the, the scripture is sufficient. It's the final authority on human beings. It's, a, it's inerrant in its original forms. We're not saying anything scary here, okay? We're just noting that there, here's, the NASB says it might, and the NIV here says cannot. Those are two different things, aren't they? And, and, and a lot of the translators that worked on NIV and, and NASB, they're like buddies. So what happened here? Somebody had two different ideas. That's what happened here. So which one is it? Well, you can find out. No. <laughs> the idea is this, and I, I actually did like, this, I don't want to speak like a fool or sound pompous, but I spent hours on this because that's how my brain works. I'm like, I can't get past this. I have, which is it? Why does it work this way? How does it work? Because people get saved, right? So it cannot be saying that nobody gets saved. Because if you just took this word for word, it says that, well, the God of this world is blinding their eyes and they cannot see his glory. And you'd be like, I guess that means no one gets saved, right? Because that's what it says. It says that nobody can see it. So that can't be completely right. That can't be the heart of it because people do get saved. Uh, and here's the bottom line. And I, I mean this sincerely. I will be glad to sit down with anyone and talk about it because I wrote out a big... Uh, just scratch the surface, and I wrote a big 4.12 verse thing on it. And that's not like, I'm really cool, look what I did. So that feels dirty saying that, but that's what I did. So, but I know I'm fully aware I'm a loser, and so it's not like, I'm not trying to like boast and like, well, the other day, <laughs> you know, look at all these letters behind my name. But the, but, you know, the, but the point being is that I'll be glad to talk about it. But I'm not going to spend all my time on that today because I don't think that's the gist of what we want to talk about. Here's the bottom line. Paul says it is his responsibility to preach the gospel, right? The Bible says that the Holy Spirit is convicting the world, the cosmos, of sin. First John says that he died for the sins of the whole world, right? And then ultimately we're told that people must choose. So it's our responsibility to preach, right? Romans 10, unless the word is preached, who can hear it, right? It's people's responsibility to respond. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And it's God's responsibility to draw people, right? That's the bottom line there. And so we're not going to get all, all caught up in, in what this means other than the fact that we know that Satan is actively and willing to work with anyone who wants to be willfully ignorant. Anyone who wants to deny the truth, saved or unsaved, Satan will be right there to help us with that, right? And that's what we need to know. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying they're preaching the gospel. They're doing it in a way that they're, that they're just preaching the pure gospel. Gospel? It's the, <laughs> the, the gospel. And, uh, and, but that Satan is actively working to veil anyone who wants to reject the true gospel for something else. Then he goes on to say this. He says that their gospel is the glory of Christ who is the image of God, right? And we know that, that Christ is the image of God, that they're propping up, not propping up in a negative way, but, but lifting up and showing Jesus because everything that Jesus did and said is who the Father is, who God is. Does that make sense? We're told that in, in John chapter 1, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? And then in chapter uh, 1, 1, and then in 1, 14, we're told that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, right? Full of grace and truth. 
So we know that Jesus is the logos, the word, the expression of what God has to say. And again, in Hebrews chapter 1, he tells us that even though God in past times spoke to our ancestors through prophets in these different ways, that he says in this last day, literally has spoken to us in the person of son. Okay? So, and that he is the express image, the exact image of the Father. So Paul's just saying when we preach Christ, we're preaching the Father. Why is that important? Because the Judaizers would come along and they want to change who God is. They want to change who Jesus is and what he did. All right? As we keep moving there, this gets interesting. Well, it's probably already interesting, but in verse 5 he says this. He says, For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Now, this is a little bit challenging because upon first reading, for me anyway, perhaps not you, there's two times, in verse 5, the word for, and then in verse 6, he used the verse for. He used the word for. The thing is, these are two different words. Why do I bring that up? Because it can seem a little out of context. It can seem a little weird because he's just been saying like, hey, we're, we're being authentic here. Um, and the, the God of this age is trying to blind people from the authentic gospel and turn them to legalism or liberalism, uh, sinful liberalism. And he says that those people are glad to take those lies. And I'm getting that from Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2. And then, he's, and then he, he says, this is what we're talking about. It's Christ who's the image of God. And then it says, for. For we preach not ourselves. Why is that the follow-up? Why is the answer to that, we preach not ourselves? You're like, well, no, you just told us what you preach. It's not yourself. Why do you have this, this, this transitory word there? So the word for in verse 5 is actually the, uh, the Greek word gar, and it literally means a logical um, explanation. So it's, 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 it's more of a, 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 it's a transition word that's saying, because of what I said, it's, it's kind of like therefore, or because. So he says, he says, the reason that we preach not ourselves is because of verse 4. In other words, we don't promote ourselves, which is a common tactic of false teachers, right? A, a, common, a, a common theme amongst false teachers is the idea of, I'm important, you need to come to me for answers, here's my book for 1995, right? It's full of revelation. I update it every year, <laughs> right? Like, that seems suspicious to me. But so, but you, you know what I'm saying? It, the, to, to, uh, it's normal for a false teacher to try to get us to need them, right? And we, we want to be careful with that. So with this little word, gar, in Greek, the point in his make is that, that Christ and the gospel is so incredible, we don't preach ourselves. We don't have to talk about ourselves. We don't have to validate ourselves as if we're something, because we're not something. Jesus is something. And he goes on from there. He says, we don't preach ourselves because of this incredible gospel through Christ, who is the image of God. Instead, we preach Jesus Christ as Lord, right? That he is supreme kurios, supreme God of the universe, if you will. We preach Jesus Christ as Lord, and we preach ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. And the word their servants is doulos, which is a common word, right? It's a word that Paul uses in many of his letters to start it. That he calls himself a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And it's a reference back to the Hebrew, real briefly, 
when it says there's no social safety nets in the law, right? Uh, and there wasn't like WIC and these type of things for people that are in need, uh, like we have today, which could be very helpful. Instead, you had laws that revolved around how you could be provided for if you were impoverished. Things like uh, after somebody uh, gathered their field, or harvested their field, anything that was dropped, they had to leave behind it, and you could go and harvest it off the ground for yourself. Uh, the fact that when you harvested your field, you couldn't harvest the corners. So the poor people were allowed to go and harvest the corners for themselves. Certain laws like that that made it so that people uh, could survive even when times were hard for them. Then there was also kind of the, I don't know, kind of the grand poobah option, if you will. Uh, when things were so bad, you could sell yourself into servanthood. And there were whole laws that were around that, right? You, they couldn't mistreat you. They couldn't uh, uh, take from you. They couldn't whip you. They, you know, there are certain laws around how that worked. Well, actually, you could be corporal punishment, but if they damaged you, you got sent out and with money and everything to kind of start a new life. But the whole point is it was, it was God's way of having a social safety net where you kept working, but it was in a way that you would sell yourself, and then that person was then responsible to provide for you and your family. So that could only last a maximum of seven years, and it, that would be if you started it like right at the exact minute of the, the Jubilee, but... Um, or not the Jubilee, but the Sabbath year. Anyway, all that to say is, if you got to the end of your servitude and you were like, this person is so kind to me. They provide so much for me. Then what you could do is you could say, I want to be your bondservant. And they would grab you and they would, well, not grab you, they would take you and they'd put your earlobe against the doorpost, which you're like, how did that work? That seems risky. And they would drive in all through your ear. I can't remember which side it was, but they drive in all through your ear, and they put a big gold ring, and you get this earring. And the whole implication is that when you're essentially working, whether it's on the farm or you're going into town for supplies, people would see that golden e that earring, and it, it meant something. It showed that your, your commitment was that my master or my, uh, you know, the person I serve... They're so good, I never want to stop serving them. I'm going to serve them till I die. And it was a lifelong commitment. And so that's when Paul references doulos over and over and over again. He's a bondservant of Jesus Christ, right? And so here he uses the same word. He says, we don't preach ourselves. Jesus is so great, we don't need to preach ourselves. We're not trying to make ourselves better. We're not, we're not in this for ourselves. In fact, we just preach, preach Christ as the Lord and... We preach ourselves as your bondservants. We're here to serve you, is what he says. This is very challenging, especially in, it seems like sometimes ministries kind of get away from people, and it starts to become about the minister instead of the people ministered to. And so we don't want to come to a place where it's all about us, do we? We want to be, when we're looking at our church, when we're looking at this world, we want to be bond servants to each other. That we say, I'm committed to serve these people, and I'm not giving up on them. That I want to continue to give them Christ. Now, this is a completely different mentality than the world gives us, right? Because the world is telling it, have it your way, right? If you go to Burger King or wherever. Just do it. Just do what you want to do. Right? All of our slogans are all based on how can I get mine. Give me a slogan that's attractive enough to my flesh that I will go out and buy your product. Right? So, But Jesus says, unless you lose your life for my sake, 
right? He says, if you try to gain your life, you're going to lose it. And unless you lose it for my sake, that's the only way you'll gain it. So Paul is putting forward this idea, not that we continue to have, you know, we just, whatever someone, I'm a, I'm a bond servant and I'll just take whatever abuse comes my way. We're not saying that. But when we are abused by people around us in our church or someone just wrongs us, I don't necessarily want to call it abuse if someone's just rude. That seems like it could get a little carried away. But if someone's rude or treats you poorly or borrows something and blows it up or, you know, whatever it might be, that we come back and we say, hey, you know what? That was, I don't appreciate that, but I love you. We can actually serve them if they've wronged us because we love them. And we can just point out like, hey, you know what? When you said that I'm stupid... It kind of hurt my feelings. That might surprise you, but it did. So you can have, we have dialogue with people. And we can actually, when people wrong us, we can serve them, humble ourselves, and find reconciliation, right? Because the world says this, if you wrong me, when you come back to me, then we'll talk about it. Right? Isn't that what the world says? That's what we say. We'll leave the world out. Like we go to a church and we say, well, this isn't happening, that's not happening, so I'm done. Peace out. And then we, 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 we go from church to church sometimes because we, we're just convinced that there's something that'll be better. And at the end of the day, we're just called to preach Christ and Him crucified and raised from the dead, forgiveness through His name, and love Him and love each other. And Paul's attitude was every person that he served, he's like, I'm, I'm a bondservant to you. I'm here to invest and see good things happen. It's a real key for ministry. That isn't to say you don't ever change churches. You absolutely change churches. I'm not saying that. But when you're at one, or when you're in your house, or when you're in your school, or when you're in your work, man, I'm here to serve these guys. I'm here to do whatever I can to make sure that they can see Jesus. So then in verse 6, he says this, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts. So this is a different word. This word is, is ati or hati. And it's just the idea of, uh, it's, it's that or though. So the first one is, this is happening. In other words, we're not preaching ourselves. We're preaching Christ and, and ourselves as servants. He says that, that happens because of this incredible glory of the gospel. In verse 6, he's saying, he says, uh, that basically, for God who said, that is the idea that through this, or this is how we do it. So we, we do it this way because the gospel is amazing, but how we do it, is because God's shown in our hearts. Does that make sense? So this is the how of it. Verse 6 is the how of it. Verse 5 is the why of it, or the because of it. And he says that this is how we have this ministry. This is how we do it. The, the same God who said, light, uh, let light shine out of darkness, which is a quote, right, from Genesis. That God said, let there be light. So the same God who, by mere voice, was able to bring illumination Right? Just think of all that light means to us. Right? This, is, this is obviously somewhat metaphorical. Uh, he hasn't literally shown in our hearts. You know, if you were to crack your chest cavity, there's not a little light bulb in there. Right? So this is metaphor. But he has, <laughs> he has illumined our hearts, our inner person, who we are. Right? He has shine, shown. Some say shown, some say shine. It's Again, it's the aorist active, which means... God has began to shine in our hearts and continues to shine all the time. So that's just a really long phrase. So our English just says, shines. But that's what's happening. 
we're able to continue this ministry because he has shown in our hearts and he continues perpetually to shine in our hearts. And what he has shined with the illumination that we've received in our inner person is the light, the illumination of the knowledge of the understanding, the grasping of God's glory. So it's a revelation of who God is, his glory. Now glory for us is mixed with the idea of awe, right? When you see like the, the glory of, you know, whatever, some mountain or, a, you know, some beautiful scenery or a sunset or even like an, an athlete or some incredible act of heroism, there's a certain awe to it, right? And that's what we associate with glory. And that's, that's included, that's the same idea, that we see the, the good words, the good opinion, which is doxa, when we see that, God's shining that in our heart, letting us see it. And so because of that, um, that knowledge of, of his goodness, of who he is, and we see it in the face of Christ, that's why we're able to have the ministry that we do. That's the, the, the foundation, the source of our ministry. Does that make sense? God's shining in our hearts. So Paul speaking of his private ministries, uh, public ministry, private ministry, going through this whole thing, saying this is how it works. And this is how it works for us too. Right? We can minister, we can give because we've been given. We can love because we've been loved. Right? And so he, he's laying out these, these tenets for ministry. And he says ultimately it's, it's, it's displayed in the face of Christ. Again, metaphor, right? Um, it's not that we go and like have little pictures of Jesus and we, oh, okay. It's the idea that when we see Christ who he is, when we experience him in our hearts, in our lives, that that changes us, right? Chapter 3 that we're being changed from glory to glory as we consider Christ, right? So this all fits in. It's all in the same context. But he says, that's how this ministry works that we don't faint from. Verse 7, he goes on, he says, but we have this treasure. What treasure? The gospel. The gospel, through the revelation of light shined in our hearts and continuing to be shined in our hearts by the Spirit of God, right? And then us being able to show others through this, this source that we have. This illumination from God. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that all surpassing power is from God and not from us. So Paul, he's talking about ministry here, right? He's saying everything that we're able to do in our ministry is all because God is doing something in our mortal corrupting bodies, right? All the power, all the strength, all the understanding, everything that we have, we've been given this treasure right now in these bodies. And it shows that the, that the power is from God. Because we don't have the strength for this, right? It's not from us. We don't have the strength. We don't have the, the, the revelation. We don't have those things outside of God. And then he goes on to, again, talking about ministry, verse 8. So even in all this glory, all this illumination, all this, this, I mean, this is incredible stuff, isn't it? What God has provided for us to be effective in this world and to love people and to be doing something great. And he kind of, and, 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 but, but there's still difficulty. He says, we are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed. The ministry can feel like that, can it? And when I say the ministry, it doesn't mean like a pulpit. It means being a Christian and actually wanting to be working with Jesus. Right, that's ministry, wherever that might be, and it, it, whether it's our house with our spouses or our kids or our roommates, whether it's just people that we see at Sid's Market, wherever it is, just, just being available for God, right? And, and more and more in our society. Remember, Paul's in a worse society, a much worse society. They don't get to vote. You don't vote on who Caesar is. 
You don't decide, well, I don't really like the fact that Nero ties uh, you know, animal skins onto live people, dips them in tar, and then lights them on fire, rides his chariot around screaming, light of the world. That's what Nero did to Christians. You don't get to vote him out. You don't carry a sign out in front of Caesar's palace being like, go home, Caesar. You just die. <laughs> That's where they live. Oh, you don't like Caesar? You're dead. So is your family. So he, he's, he's talking about these incredible realities in a society way worse off than ours. This is, this is important. And he says, we're hard-pressed, but we're not crushed. You know, when my life is Christ, and I know that that's a process, right? <laughs> I, don't, I, I wouldn't say, I don't know. Maybe you can say that. I, I can't say it, that I'm holy Christ. I, I want to be, but obviously stuff comes up in my heart, and I love myself, and whatever. But so he says here, he says, we're hard-pressed, but we're not crushed. We're not defeated. We have lots of pressure in our society, just like they did. We're not the favored people in our society, just like they weren't, right? Many of our beliefs are considered to be ignorant and foolish, uh, science-denying, right? That's who we are to 50% of the country. Maybe more. I don't know. So... We have pressure, but we don't have to be crushed because our life is not our own. Our life is wrapped up in Christ. And that's just not some airy-fairy pastor junk. That's real. That the more I realize that my life is to know him, to know God, to actually have a relationship with him, not just to be saved, not just to go to church, not just to hand out tracts for outreaches, but to actually interact with God, to wake up in the morning and, and talk to the Lord. Here I am. What do you have for me today? To read a scripture, oh, you're so good, you encouraged me today. You know, all these different things. That that's our calling as Christians. That all of a sudden, when we're, when we're met with resistance on every side from the outside, you know what, we're not crushed. We're not done for. We're just getting started. Right? The gospel's going out. Great things are happening. People need to get saved. Right? We're not crushed. Not at all. We're perplexed, but not in despair. This is funny, because it's actually the same word with an added prefix. Perplexed and despair, they're the same word. It's, it'd be like if you said, I'm perplexed, but I'm not super perplexed. So it translates to despair. The idea is, we don't understand everything that's happening, right? We might be understanding, what's that song again? Like, uh, I would have thought by now that you would have reached out or whatever. That, never mind. I should have known more about the song. Yeah, so... But like, like, I would have thought you'd come by now. Why have you not come yet? The world is so bad. Well, if he didn't come when Rome was rocking it, we got a long way to go, right? Don't get me wrong. Yay, Lord Jesus, come swiftly. Like, I'm not, I'm not saying I don't want the Lord to come. I'm just saying, like, if we're hunkered down, hoping, like, well, it's just really bad. Nah, I got news for you. I think we're going to start losing heads. I think that's when it'll get really bad. But let it be. It's fine. It's Okay. Because the Lord is the Lord. So we're perplexed. We don't understand everything that's happening. We may not even like everything that's happening. But we, we should not be in despair. Despair means a loss of hope. It means a loss of expectation that God is doing something. So here's the thing. Government, irrelevant. Jesus is so much higher than government. We don't have to despair about anything that our government ever does. We cannot like it. We can vote against it. We have a right as Americans to vote, and that's great. 
But you know what? We never despair. We don't have to watch C-SPAN biting our nails about what's going to pass and what's not because we're just going to keep on giving the gospel. We don't preach ourselves. We preach Christ and him as Lord. He goes on there. He says, he says uh, we're persecuted but not abandoned. Right? They were persecuted. People didn't like them. They were persecuted by Christians. They were persecuted by Jews. They were persecuted by uh, the government. I mean, just on the, everybody. And you might feel like that too some days. It is a bummer how much the church is more than willing to persecute the church. It's a weird thing on individual levels and on doctrinal levels. You know, we're going to disagree, right? There are whole churches where people are excited and they want to wave flags. Hey, God bless them. Can you imagine how awesome it would be if we were so excited we just couldn't hold ourselves still? I, I think about how, like, I've literally jumped off my couch and raised my hands in the air because a little black puck went in a net. <laughs> I've done that, shamefully. I've done that. You know, I, I've, I've been barbecuing and, like, salivated and been like, oh, when's this going to be done? I need this. And then I've sat oddly by and been like, oh, yeah, God did this cool thing, like someone got saved, but, you know. This is crazy. He's doing great things. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. This is always, it's Obi-Wan Kenobi, isn't it? It just kills me every time. When he tells us, he's looking at Darth Vader and he says, you may strike me down, but I shall rise more powerfully, or whatever he says, right? <laughs> and then Darth Vader strikes him down and he becomes like this ghost man. But here's the thing. We can be struck down. But we're not destroyed. You know, whether that be the ultimate being struck down and we're slain, or even if we're just knocked down a notch in this life, we don't have to be destroyed. Jesus put it this way they're going to torture you, they're going to deliver you to the government, they're going to kill you, and not a head on your, uh, hair on your head will perish. It's incredible. So Paul says, man, we have this treasure in these earthen vessels, we're going through all these things. It's okay. Because the gospel can never be hindered. Verse 10, he says this, We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that this life may also be, his life, excuse me, may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. So he says the same thing in different ways three times. It's interesting, right? Three times he basically said, now there's different nuance, but it's the exact same message, isn't it? Death in us means life in others. So the first thing he says, he says, in this body, in our bodies, we bear around the death of the Lord Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. So in this life, Again, this is metaphor, right? We don't actually have a dead body of Jesus that we carry around. So he's saying, in us, we bear something. There's something that's constant, something we're thinking about, something that's, a, that's at work and at play in us, right? And it's the death of Jesus. So the death of Jesus, it means forgiveness. The resurrection of Jesus means the, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and the validity of the death of Jesus, the proof of it, right? It also, the idea that when Jesus, remember when he is uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, what does he pray? Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me, right? That was his prayer before death, before going to pay for sin. And then he follows that by saying, nevertheless, not what my will, not what I want, but your will be done. 
We bear that death in our bodies. And that's why this last phrase in, in verse 12, so then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. This is where it comes true in the ministry. To truly minister for the kingdom of God and to truly be a help for, for, per, a help for people, we must acknowledge ourselves as bond slaves, bond servants to Christ and to one another. And then when we're going to minister, there will constantly be a death in us. Because we don't, in our natural state, as sinful people with a sinful uh, uh, nature, we don't want to be servants. We want to be supreme. We want to be admired. We want to be respected. We want to things have go our way. But yet, if we're going to minister to others, we have to be able to be wronged. We have to be able to not have our own will. We have to be able to, to yield to Christ. And so Paul's just saying, he goes, do you want to know the definitive idea behind the ministry, this, this kind of final idea? He says, it's this, death works in me, Paul says. It's not that Paul was just like, yeah, I love causing riots and getting the poo beat out of me. It's my favorite, right? Every city this happens. It's the fact that he says, I die to myself. I get beat down, Paul would say. And soon he's going to talk about it. He says, let me speak as a fool. And he's going to go through this whole thing about how he's been whipped so many times he can't count anymore. How he's suffered shipwreck multiple times. He's been in peril of his own brethren, in peril of robbers, in peril from the government. Now he gives this whole list. And the point of him giving the list is to say, I care about you guys. That's Paul's point. I care about you. That, that this, everything that's happening to me, it means, means nothing to me because of Christ and his, his message. And so Paul's just telling us, he's saying, look, this is the, the, the identity, this is the idea of the servant. Death works in me. I say no to me, my comfort, my desire, and my will, Paul says, so that Jesus' life can be manifested. So we don't suppress what Jesus wants in our life. It's so quick, it can happen so quick suppressing Jesus, isn't it? Some event happens, you're, you're somewhere, someone kind of annoys you or ticks you off, and then boom, some rude word comes out of your mouth. And we feel justified because they're lame. They deserved it, right? And we always phrase it this way, I know I shouldn't have, but when we tell someone about it. I was in traffic the other day, and I know I shouldn't have, but mm, gave someone the one-finger salute, <laughs> right? And we chuckle about it. We just destroyed the possibility of ministering Christ to someone, and we're in the foyer going, hee, I know I shouldn't have. Death works in us. Not for salvation. Salvation was a free gift. We, we acknowledge that we die with Christ. But if we want to be disciples, if we want to be ministers of the new covenant, death works in us. And that allows the life of Christ. And there's so much more to be said about it in Romans 6 and other places. But I just encourage you, man, God has great things for you. This is the best time we could ever be alive because God ordained it. And it's the best time that we can talk to the people that are around us because God ordained their time and place too so that they might seek after him. So we have this incredible opportunity that every single person we see, there's a couple things we can know about them. Number one, they need Jesus. Number one, they're, they're just irreparably broken, right? They're like us. They've had stuff done to them that's probably horrible, and they've done stuff to others that's horrible. And, then, and, the, and, the, and also Satan is helping them in their rejection. 
So when we just love people, Jesus told us, right? Herein shall all men know you're my disciples, if you love each other. So we're called to love and then tell the truth. And man, who knows? Was there 2,600 people on the peninsula? I think there's about 200, so 225 people that come to this church. And I don't know the rest of the churches. I'm not really sure. But uh, carry the one. That's a lot of people to get saved, right? So, hey, let's get out there. Let's get after it. Let's repent when we're wrong. And let's invite Christ in for his power. And let's reach our community, huh? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your great kindness and mercy. And Lord, thank you for just the encouragement of your word. Thank you for all the people that went before us, this great cloud of witnesses that uh, can testify to your faithfulness and your goodness. Lord, we just confess to you, you've been so good and kind to us. Lord, you've forgiven us so much, and we praise you for that. Thank you for the blood of our Savior. Thank you for loving us. Thanks for the folks that gave us the gospel, even when we acted like fools, and they came back and gave it again. We appreciate that. Lord, thank you that you're, you've got plans for us. Lord, thank you that we're going to get to suffer for you. We're going to, get to experience victory for you. And Lord, thank you that you love the people and you're not willing that any should perish outside of these doors. And we pray, Lord, that you would lead us, guide us to those supernatural um, interactions with people, that we might share your love and share your truth with them and uh, that more might come into your kingdom. So thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, God bless you guys.